That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. No guest today. An extra special podcast in honor of the ESPNW Summit last week. Uh, It was our eighth annual summit in uh, Southern California with some amazing, amazing speakers, panels, um, tons of great athletes and women in sports, and a couple guys, too, always make the cut. Um, But this was my seventh one. This was the SPNW's eighth, and I wrote a piece for W afterwards with eight takeaways from the summit, and some of you may have read it. I wanted to bring to light a couple of uh, the things I mentioned in that piece, including sound from some of those panels and speakers. I always leave it feeling super inspired, super invigorated, and this year was no was no different. Especially considering everything going on outside of sports and intersecting with sports, it was actually a really nice three days to sort of put down my phone, ignore social media for the most part, and engage with a lot of really smart and motivated people on big issues. Uh, connecting on shared experiences and struggles and being inspired by people who have gone through some really tough stuff and come out better and stronger on the other side. So uh, I tell anybody who can make it and, and gets an invite that they need to make it a priority because it is such a powerful couple days. But for those of you that are unable to make it, hopefully uh, I'll bring a couple things to you in this podcast that will help you share in some of the wisdom that was imparted over those couple days down in Newport Beach. That's what she said. That's what she said. I want to start with my first takeaway, which is always be yourself unless you can be Bozema St. John and then be Bozema St. John. This woman, I had never heard of before. Um, She's held high positions at Apple Music, at Spike Lee Company, at, at Beats by Dre. She's now at Uber. And she is just a powerhouse. She's a force of nature from the second that she got on stage with Carrie Champion, she had the it factor. Um, not only was it pre-10 a.m. and she was rocking a leather mini dress and giant dangly gold earrings and mile-long hair extensions, but she was also just so self-possessed and confident and had such insightful things to say about being a woman of color who dresses flashy and who, who shows up into a room and makes a statement as soon as she steps in um, and how that has affected her work and the legacy she wants to leave for women coming behind her. And she was asked by someone in the crowd uh, two things. One, have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome? Have you ever had a job that you didn't feel qualified to have? And how did you deal with that doubt? And secondly, when you've accomplished so much in your career, do you find yourself competing with what you've already achieved? And how do you decide to better what's already been done? Here's Bozema St. John on both of those. So there's a couple things. Yes, I shared the the one time. The one time I took the job and I was like, eh, maybe I shouldn't have, right? Um, I've never done that again because I have felt, at least for myself, that it's it's not even about the stretch because I do believe that we should take jobs that stretch us and grow us, uh, but that I know that even though I may not have the experience yet, I'm capable of leaning and stretching and getting there, Right. Uh, and then doing the work to make sure that, so I'm no, I'm no longer arrogant about it. Let's put it that way, right? Which is that, like, I realize where the gaps are, and I work really hard to fill the gap, right? Uh, I treat it like a PhD. You know, it's like, if I don't know, like, when I entered Apple, and, you know, we're like, oh, okay, we're going to create streaming music. I mean, it's like, that, that wasn't being done. There was nowhere to look. There was no blueprint anywhere to be like, oh, okay, I'm going to copy that over there. 
You know, I, I had to learn. I had to figure it out and figure out how to do it. And even now, as I sit here, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, we're, we're talking about flying cars. You know, where you learn that at? Yeah. You they know don't teach that? <laughs> where are you learning that? You know, but you got to do the work. Right. Um, and yes, I, do, I am very competitive with myself and everybody else. And I'm petty, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. Look, don't get it twisted. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. I do things just so I can beat your ass. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it is that, yes, I'm always trying to do it better than I've done before, do it faster than I've done it before. Uh, because, one, to the point, you know, which is a serious one, which we've been talking about, is that I do have something to prove. Mm-hmm. You know? And that if everyone is watching me and being like, oh, there's that black girl over there. Mm. You know, it's like if I don't do it well, that means other people won't get the opportunity. So, yes, I am very competitive with myself. Next, she got a question from someone else in the crowd about her mantra of bringing your whole self to everything, including work, and how she became empowered and confident enough to do that. I have been on such a personal journey to be my truest self in the workplace and face obstacles every day and feel like I have to, you know, hide. Mm. Um, How did, how did you get here? Mm. You know, how did, how did you get to a place where you're loud and proud, you're fashion forward, Mm. you say exactly what you feel and who you are without men, you know, telling you that you (laughs) you can't, you can't be that, you can't wear that, you can't think that, you can't say it out loud. Ooh, girl, ooh, girl. Tell me about the curtains. Tell about the curtains in your house. Oh, okay. So there's a couple of ways to answer that. Laura, girl, you good. I'm about to lay down. On the I get because it's so much. You keep getting closer to the ground. I just keep, being, I keep getting closer and closer. Okay, so for, okay, so there's a couple of things. Lord, okay. Um, so Carrie, Carrie, okay, so. <laughs> where do I begin? I know, where do I begin? So first of all, mm-hmm. let's sort of work backwards. Mm-hmm. In my house right now, I'm, I'm a single mom, as Carrie pointed out my husband passed away from cancer almost four years ago and uh my daughter and i um bought a house in january uh in la where we live and i don't i think somewhere i must have been keeping this sort of feeling and idea that i was still making room for a man you know and so everywhere that we've lived since has been not neutral colors but just you know not so feminine this house is all girl you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I got, like, fuchsia bright pink curtains in the bedroom. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm just, it's just mine or ours. Because she's here and she's probably going to be mad at me if I don't include her in it. But you know what I mean? It's ours. Um, so that's one way in that I am doing it even in the places that are intimate to me. I'm bringing all of myself. Right? There is no place where it's like, oh, okay, let me just pretend not to be this. Even in my home. Because, like, sometimes, like, we really got to think about that. Like, literally, when I was buying the curtains, I was like, damn, I have never actually done this. You know what I mean? Like, whole, even in my own house, bring my whole self into my house. That's craziness. In my bedroom, girl, where I'm, you know, naked. You know what I'm saying? Like, why? I'm not bringing my whole self there. And she said, at a, she had a moment, she was like, I thought, but is this too much? Yeah. Guy? Yes. And she was like, hell no, it ain't too much. You know what I mean? And I was like, yeah. You don't like these pink curtains. Yes. Okay? <laughs> so that's one. But another, which is that, you know, this this idea of of being an image that other people expect. Because yeah. I've heard it. I've heard it all. <laughs> Girl. You know? In, in the reviews that say, you know, maybe you should tone it down just a little bit because it's a little distracting. You know? Or, oh, let me just tell you this. Okay. On Sunday... I was at the Forbes Under 30 Summit, okay? Um, I'm 40 years old, so they feel like I'm some sort of guru, you know what I mean? Like, I've made it somehow. So I was, like, standing up, you know, to the young women trying to, 
you know, imparts truths, uh-huh. you know? And uh, I put it on Twitter. There, you know, there were like five truths that I feel are important to me or that I've learned along the way. Uh, and that day, I was wearing this very glittery big skirt, you know, and uh, pretty much like a tank top, except that my boobs were sitting real high, you know? And uh, I talked about it during the, the presentation. Like, I was like, you know, it's Sunday and I'm preaching, except I'm a preacher with my boobs out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I felt that was very appropriate. So I put that on Twitter, and it's like, you know, the image of me, and, you know, I've put my five shoes and whatnot. And this man decides he's going to comment, because it's like one, point one, point two, point three, right? And he's like, point six, cover up your breasts and act more professionally. Uh-huh. Who are you talking to? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That, like, these expectations about what we're supposed to look like and what we're supposed to be, you know what? Guess what? I, my, my cleave is about to be out every day this week, okay? <laughs> because you're going to get used to this. You know, and sometimes that's how I feel. You know, even walking in my office now, I'm like, you know what? The heels are just going to get higher because I want you just to get comfortable with this. This shouldn't look like some anomaly, you know? And I'm not saying that everybody needs to do that. (laughs) You know, if you don't feel comfortable with your breasts out, don't do it. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Don't do it. It's fine. You're just saying bring your whole self. I'm just saying, yeah, bring your whole self, like, to to the experience. Because to me, it's like the more we do that and the more that people get to see that, the more comfortable everybody's going to be with it. You guys love her as much as I do right by now, right? I'm guessing after just hearing that little bit, you can already tell about the fire that she brings. And uh, she's Badass Boz, B-O-Z, on Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow her and just be inspired. It reminded me what she said about making people, forcing people to be comfortable by getting into the room um, of being a woman in sports too. And this idea that I've shared uh, this before, but plenty of other women in the industry I've talked to have said the same, that when you start out, you feel like the best approach is to be one of the guys. Don't stick out. Um, And eventually when you find your voice and you establish a certain agency, you decide that you have the power and the confidence to stop trying to be one of the boys and instead be wholly yourself to bring your whole self, as Bozema said, and force people to get comfortable with that. And that's so much more important than just fitting in with the status quo is saying, no, I'm a woman. I love sports, but I have this perspective and these experiences and they are worthwhile just as much as yours. And I'm going to bring them to this experience. I'm going to make you uncomfortable by having to hear what I say instead of just fitting in. Um, And boy, does she do that. And she talked a lot about opening the door and holding it open for those that are following her. Uh, What a great example she sets. So uh, she's awesome. I love her. Speaking of that, of of opening the door and keeping it open, uh, I wrote in my takeaways about representation and how it matters. And there was a really cool moment in one of our breakaway groups as we were discussing about keeping girls in the game and the high numbers of girls that, that quit sports around around 12 or 13. And A.J. Andrews, who's an outfielder for the National Pro Fast Pitches Akron Racers, she's also the first woman to win a gold glove. Um, she said in that session that the reason she wanted to play softball was because of the woman sitting right next to her at that table, Olympic gold and silver medalist Natasha Watley, who was the first African-American woman to play on USA Softball at the Olympic Games. And we talk a ton at ESPNW about if you can see it, you can be it. And Andrew's saying that she saw herself in Natasha Watley and it gave her permission to pursue that dream was super powerful. Uh, she said as much in a conversation with Allison Overholt at the summit. You're sitting. Yeah, Natasha Watley, who is here, I think, or maybe she had to leave. Oh, she's over there. So she <laughs> she was my inspiration growing up playing softball. I wanted to be like Natasha Watley. And um, so that's just something that, you know, it, it, I'm a firm believer in because 
it truly happened for me, and um, I hope that I can meet someone down the line where they tell me they're in the same setting as this, and like you, I'm here because of you, because I, you made me want to do this. Very cool. And keep your eyes and ears open for AJ Andrews because she is now pursuing a career in broadcasting as well. And I get the feeling she is going to be pretty badass at that too. Speaking of badasses, Rebecca Gregory spoke at the summit and you may have heard that name. She was a spectator along with her young son at the Boston Marathon and was affected by the bombings lost a leg and has had to undergo multiple surgeries. And at the time, just a spectator, was not a runner, was not particularly interested in running. Um, But after the bombing and after going through the loss of her leg, has really been invigorated and and decided that she wanted to train and run. She eventually underwent uh, some complications that prevented her from doing all 26.2, but she did return the next year to the marathon and finish, I believe, at least the last three plus miles in order to, to, uh, you know, accomplish that goal of doing something on one leg she had never even dreamed of doing on two. And her message about sharing in our struggles and being open about how hard things are was really powerful. And so April 15, 2013, my life became completely different than what it used to be. And then for the next 18 months, I would spend them doing surgery after surgery, operation after operation, trying to salvage a leg that didn't want to be saved. Standing here before you today, I've done 65 surgeries to repair the damage that the bomb left me with. And guess what? Each of those are worth it because they are a part of my journey. And what I learned when I was laying in a bed or in a wheelchair for a year and a half is that there is so much that we can bring by just sharing with each other our troubles and our obstacles and being so vulnerable and being so transparent that we open up because everyone is going through something. And it may be a bad leg. It may be a bad boyfriend. Whatever it is, We can all relate to each other. And it was a beautiful thing. And when I was in that situation, when I could do nothing, I realized that I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do everything I could to help other people, to show my struggles in the most transparent way possible, because I have been given a platform that I otherwise never would have had. She also talked about not being a victim and the lessons that she's sharing with her kids by living her life the way she does every day. When I was braver than what was trying to kill me, amazing things happened in my life. That same year, I testified in the trial of the remaining bomber, and I didn't want to go, but I did. And I did my testimony, and I stood right in front of him, and I looked at him, and he never looked at me. And then I got to go back, and I got to do a victim impact statement, and I got to stand before him, and he looked me in the eyes for the first time, and I said, I was asked to give a victim impact statement today, but in order to do that, I'd have to be someone one's victim. And I'm definitely not yours. And I'm definitely not your brother's. Life is what we make it. Chapters are just that. 
they're chapters. And sometimes those chapters lead us to incredible places. And I've realized that I need to challenge myself in every capacity. I need to do things that I would not have otherwise ever done before. And I need to do them in the most beautiful way possible because every single moment is that much more precious. I am so proud to be able to show my children that, that no matter what obstacle they're facing, they can do it because our obstacles are never going to define who we are. They are going to be building blocks to get us to places that we never knew we could go. That is how we live our life. That is how I live mine. And I'm so thankful to be able to be in front of people. And I say all the time, if I can touch one person in a room full of people, one person, that's all I want to do. Because that one person can potentially spread their light to someone else and someone else and someone else. And I'll never know the magnitude of what my one little light has done. But I want to know every single day that I have tried. Amazing, right? And one of the things I talked about in my eight takeaways is perspective and how many people come to the summit and teach us perspective. For me, having gone through some serious injuries and track that have stunted my ability to be the athlete that I once was, I haven't accepted it. I'm still fighting it, but I haven't taken the necessary steps to try to reclaim the activities and the and the sports that I loved that have been taken from me as a result of the Achilles tear and the back injuries and the injuries in my kinetic chain that have resulted from everything sort of falling apart. And I left the summit this year with a goal. I don't know exactly what the goal is yet because I need to find um, a, a new doctor that is going to set me on a better path to sort of accomplish some more things and get closer to some of the things I want to do. So uh, the, the the goal is maybe a half marathon next fall, although I don't know if that's realistic because I do need to talk to doctors. I haven't been allowed to run for five years. But I left and I thought there are women doing Ironmen who have had a leg amputated. There's got to be an answer for somebody who is suffering from significant injuries as a result of a kinetic chain issue and a total imbalance in legs. But um, if they can do it, I can at least get closer to some of the things that I used to do. So I walk out of there every time thinking to myself that that, um, some of the barriers we put up for ourselves, some of the things we decide are not possible, are self-made walls. They aren't real boundaries. They aren't real barriers. They aren't really impossibilities. We just decide that it doesn't seem probable or easy. And I'm trying to change that. And uh, hopefully when you guys are listening to some of these people, you feel the same way, whether that's doing a triathlon, running a 5K or something that has nothing to do with sports. But, you know, we can't sit around and wait for something catastrophic to happen to us to wake us up and change our perspective on looking fat in a bathing suit so we don't want to do a triathlon or feeling like we've, we're not athletic enough to try to do a half marathon or, or any number of things that we create for ourselves. We should not wait around for something bad to happen to, to change our perspective. We should be able to ignite within ourselves that, that fire and that belief uh, on our own, just deciding to do that one day, just sitting down and saying, this is I'm going to make a change. This is going to happen. Which brings me to a group of ladies that also gave me that feeling of both inspiration and guilt where I watched them and I was enamored and and in awe, but I also felt like I took so many things for granted and that I need to get back to feeling the fire of, of wanting to prove someone wrong or of wanting to do something that I didn't know for sure could be done. And these women are 
absolutely incredible. You've probably seen the video because it's been viewed at least 13 million times. It was on ESPNW under Foudy's Finds. Uh, it's, it's a group of women called the Splash Sisters. They are on uh, an adult rec league basketball team, and they are ages 85 to 92. And these women show up and play against far younger teams in their 50s and 60s. And they show such joy in just being given the opportunity to play. And I don't know about you guys, but I saw a league of their own when I was younger. And I saw it again a couple years ago. And I got home from from a night out. So admittedly, I'd had a little bit of wine. But I got in about halfway through. And when they got to the end and they were reflecting on their accomplishments and they were walking around this museum in their honor, I was bawling and it never hit me the same way when I was a kid because I just didn't really get it. But now that I'm older and I've been around a lot of conversations about what changed with Title IX and how opportunity has changed for women in sports, it hit me so hard that these women were offered an opportunity to do something that they loved and that they were passionate about. And then it was taken away. And there are so many women that never grew up just believing that what they wanted to do was an option. And that still happens for a lot of young girls with football or baseball. But for the most part, in in a, in a wide variety of sports, girls never knew that it wasn't something that they could pursue. And these women on stage were talking about how they didn't play basketball when they were young girls. There either wasn't a budget or they weren't allowed to. And so to discover the joy of something in their 60s, 70s, 80s, is such a blessing. And it's something that I and everyone in my generation and everyone that has come after me takes for granted, but not these women. I really recommend you go to ESPNW.com and search for the Splash Sisters video to watch it. But here's a little taste of a conversation Julie Foudy had with the ladies at the summit. Uh, What was your reaction when you saw... 13.5 13.5 million views on Facebook. Meg, let's start with you. Unbelievable. <laughs> People need to get a life. <laughs> oh, Meg, I so love you. This is the thing, though, about them. That was what really struck me with this story, is I kept saying to them, like, I mean, you guys are amazing. You realize that? And they're like, no. <laughs> they, we, we aren't. We just play. I'm like, I know, but you're like 85 years old. And they're like, no. Marge, have you been able to realize the impact you have when people watch you now after this? No. Every day I say I'm very lucky to be on the other side of the grass and not eating dirt. (laughs) How about that for a takeaway quote, huh? It's a blessing each day just to move, and that's the perspective that you leave with. You know, it's funny. I was just talking to a makeup artist when I was down at Levitard, and it was one of the guys on the show's birthday, and everyone was celebrating and bringing out cake, and she said, oh, you know, uh, something I don't need to celebrate is birthdays. And I said, you know what? What's the alternative? The alternative to celebrating a birthday is you're dead. And that idea of it's a blessing just to move, to not avoid celebrations of getting older, of having opportunities, of being alive, um, that's, that's huge. And I know it sounds cheesy and lame, but that's why I celebrate everything as big as I can. You know, sometimes you'll see somebody whose life is taken from them too young or, or even just their way of living 
somebody who becomes immobile or somebody who loses the freedom that we have every day just to choose what we want to do and walk around and be athletic and, and have fun. And I think to myself, you know, how lucky me and my friends and family are to be healthy and, and to be able to celebrate things. So those women just reminded me of that. And I just love the one got a miracle whip sponsorship after that video. And she was so excited that she got a miracle whip jacket with her name on it. I mean, magic, absolute magic. Speaking of magic, my final segment and takeaway that I'm going to talk about today is a couple of things that Cheryl Crow talked about. And she gave us a really great performance of four songs, which was very cool. But I actually was surprised and more entertained by her conversation with Carrie Champion. Not because I didn't expect her to be thoughtful and interesting, but she speaks in a way that is very poetic and very fitting for a songwriter and an artist and talked about things from a perspective that we've heard, but in a way we haven't. And it was it was really cool to sit back and listen to her. She started by talking about one of her first gigs as a backup singer for Michael Jackson and the unorthodox way that she got herself that job. Backup singer for Michael Jackson. Bad tour, yeah. 1988. You London. have to love some 80s hair. Uh-huh. <laughs> you have got to love some 80s hair, people. So talk to me about that moment in your life. I just can't stop loving you. Oh, baby. Um, well, I'll tell you, it was kind of funny. I mean, and you talk about um, messaging. And I tell this story to a lot of young girls who asked me, how do I get into the record business? And I was a school teacher in Missouri, and I uh, I drove out to L.A., and six months later, I crashed an audition for the Michael Jackson tour to go on the road, and I got it. I mean, it was one of those things where you had to be recommended by, like, a Quincy Jones or a Swedeen or, you know, somebody in the inner circle, and I just thought, well, I mean, what's the worst thing that they could do? And so I went, and... They said, well, do you have, you know, a tape or anything? And I was like, I don't, but um, but I promise, you know, I can sing. And so they said, <laughs> okay, come on in. And um, I got it. So, you know, it's just like one of those things where if you don't try, you'll never know. And it totally put my my life on a course. I'd never been out of Missouri. I mean, I literally had never been out of the States, didn't own a passport. And a month later, we were playing in front of 75,000 people in, in Tokyo. So wow. you just never, I mean, you never know. You can work your whole life towards something, but it's the actual act of showing up that I think is what, it's what leaves some people behind. It's yeah. that, that just saying, well, what do I have to lose? And I wish you could see that 80s hair she's talking about. Uh, it was up on a screen behind her and Carrie Champion. But if you Google Cheryl Crow and Michael Jackson, I'm sure it'll come up. And her hair back then, almost as amazing as the wisdom that she just imparted there. Uh, and speaking of Michael Jackson, she later touched upon him again in speaking about what she described as a sort of divinity that she could see in him when he was making these physical movements and, and dancing in a way that had never been seen before. I got to go back to what you said to me, the connection between sports and music. And you were talking about your time with Michael Jackson and watching him, the divinity of it, the molecules. Can you yeah, explain that? You know, I feel like, um, and I was raised Christian, and I, I, looked, I studied Buddhism, and I'm a big meditator, and Jesus is my homie. But, you know, I think there are a lot of other enlightened beings that have walked the planet that have served 
to emulate what enlightenment is. And so when people ask me what God is, I'm just like, you know, it's the thing that is the threat in all of us. And when I was working with Michael, I looked at this guy. Um, I, I doubled him on a few songs. Um, like she says, I am the one. And I would be standing off stage doubling him, and I'd be watching him do these, you know, these crazy moves that no one's ever seen before. And, you know, you don't know how hard it is to invent something that's never been done before. Mm. And to watch him, do, like, look like he's defying gravity. And I could see the divinity that, that, exi- that existed in him, you know, with all the display of humanity and ego and fragility that went along with who he was and became from a five-year-old. Um, but when he stepped out on stage, there was something that did change the molecules in the room. And I see it with the greatest of artists, people that walk out into a room and they have nothing more than a guitar and a mic and they make all of us feel deeply. Or when you see um, Mia Hamm or you see somebody incredible serena i mean you just and you know the odds of that and what goes into it and it propels all of us to be the best Mm. that we can be it puts us in touch with something that is you know that's that's deeper but i i do i do feel like with art and it's something that i really want to encourage all of our young people that art is what has typically throughout history it's 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 like hieroglyphics it's told our story it's it's basically, um, di- you know, it's, 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 you know, written our history for us about who we are, who we became, what we were into, and that it, it has to be treated with uh, the reverence it deserves. I love that respect for the arts, and while I am not a particularly religious person, I love the idea of a sort of divinity within a person. I always feel that way about people who are so unbelievably skilled at something that they know why they're here. And that's not specifically religious. It's not God gave you those skills and God put you here to do this. But just you were born and whatever collection of things that made you who you are genetically and then your upbringing, everything else, um, that there is something that you are so good at that no one could deny that that's what you're meant to do. And I think about that a lot usually with musicians, either people who can play concertos when they're three years old or voices like Whitney Houston's where it comes out of you and that's it. That was that was so clearly uh, what you were meant to give everybody around you and what you were meant to do with yourself. Um, so I think there's there's no arguing, despite his flaws, that Michael Jackson was very clearly uh, doing the thing he was meant to do. And there is a, a, a very special energy and a molecular change, as she described it, when you see someone uh, doing something that they were meant to do. Really cool. So earlier in the interview, uh, Cheryl had talked about adopting two kids later in life on her own and a mantra that she embraced from a friend to get ish done, the S word, but you know what I mean, get ish done. And that happens to apply to every day, whether that's what she told us, which was she was jumping on essentially a red eye flight to get home and be able to take her kids home from school to be in that carpool lane the next day, even as a superstar rock star who had this engagement, that was important to her to be there the next day to pick them up. And that's an everyday example of getting ish done. She also talked about some of the songs on her new record, one of which was uh, a result of tensions during the election cycle. And the song is essentially about 
coming together and having conversations and accepting that maybe you won't always end up on the same side or agree, but that just yelling at each other from either side never works. And when we need to get ish done on serious issues, it can't just be screaming back and forth. It has to be about finding that common ground and finding that humanity that connects us all. Um, But I loved what she said to Carrie about balancing being a mother and a rock star and a, and a citizen of the earth. And when Carrie asked specifically what her advice is for sort of overachieving women who, who want to do it all, uh, she had such introspection and thoughtfulness in her answer. I, I just loved it. I'll tell you, um, I really feel like, I mean, sometimes I actually feel like there's a, that the minute is shrinking, like it's a tangible feeling that the minute is shrinking. And, um, there are scientists that talk about that, that elasticity in time. And that, and I, I really just want to encourage everybody to, like, periodically in the middle of your day, just stop and look around you and just get yourself back into your body and just absorb a little bit of what life is holding for you. Because it, you wake up and you're 55. <laughs> and, and that's a good thing, but you don't want to look back and think you missed a lot of your life. And I do think that... For, te- for all the great things that technology can do, it does take us away from being present. Um, and the other thing is I, I encourage everyone that I meet that mindfulness meditation can really elongate your day and can actually, in some ways, I think, um, inform you about what the next step for you um what's going to hold the most meaning for you. And I know that sounds crazy, but just quietening the brain, even if you do for five minutes a day, just quieting your brain and really trying to let whatever thoughts come in, just let them go. They're all going to be there later um, so that you're able to really tap into the, to the divine and tap into what it is that is for you. Sometimes we miss out on what is for us because we're really busy telling that story. One of the things I will tell you about my adopting my kids that my mom said, my mom says our, our whole lives, we tell the story about what our life was supposed to look like, Mm -hmm. what was meant to be. And I told this story up until I adopted my kids or until I had cancer that I was going to fall in love and I was going to get married Mm -hmm. and I was going to have babies and I was still going to have my career, and I was going to do this and do that. Um, and what that wound up doing was really limiting what my life could be by saying it was spo- it's supposed to be this. And as soon as I let go of that story, I went up with these two beautiful boys and some incredible relationships along the way. Um, maybe everything isn't going to look exactly like the way we're conditioned to think that it's supposed to look by virtue of what we've had or what we didn't get. But maybe this, the, the, the adventure or the challenge is to not ever tell the story, but to say thank you for infinite possibility, the possibilities that I cannot even brainstorm, that my tiny pea brain can't even envision based on things I've already seen. Maybe there's more. So, I mean, that's, that's my advice to anybody I ever meet is to, you know, just to let go of the story and tap into that thing that is bigger than what your brain can picture. Because you can't plan your life. That's so right. Like, get rid of the story because it's not no, going to be No, and you have to way. remember that your brain is like a computer. It knows the things that have already been put into it by its experiences. But there's a whole other part of our brain we don't even use. But maybe it's connected to spirit. Maybe it's not. 
But if you base everything in your life, all your goals on, of what you want to be or what you want your life to look like based on what's already been, then just think about what you're missing. And, I mean, we wouldn't have had the incredible women that we've had in history if they told the story about trying to do something that somebody else had already done. And, um, you know, that's that to me is what great achievement is about. Whoa, right? Just amazing. I mean, it's it's stuff that you hear, but she puts it in such a way that it totally changes your perspective on the very same things you're always thinking about, you know. But I love her point that, you know, our, our brains are like computers and they know the things we've seen and done and witnessed. It reminded me of Bozema St. John, who during her panel said that innovation is just making ish up, <laughs> that nobody knows what they're doing. It's just fake it till you make it, make ish up and, and create new things. And uh, Cheryl applied that message to dreaming of, of things that have never been done and also to letting your story be told and not feeling like you have to write it first and then fulfill it, which I love. I also think, you know, she talked about the minute shrinking. And I feel like so often um, when I get really busy and when I joke about needing to clone myself, it feels like the minute is shrinking. It feels like there's just no time. And I also felt like her message of because the minute feels like it's shrinking, you need to take time to, to meditate, to think on what matters, to, to prioritize and to slow down. It reminded me of a quote from one of my favorite books, which is House of Leaves by Mark Danielewski. The quote is not exactly the same message. This is more about wasting time. But I wanted to share it anyway, because I feel like it, it applies in that if you spend too much time doing things for others and not yourself, if you get so lost or in despair or frustrated or overwhelmed that you do nothing, nothing at all, if you spend too much time in the rat race pushing towards some sort of goal or idea of what you should be instead of sitting in the moment and using it for, for something that brings you joy or, or peace or uh, enlightenment, you regret it. You, you look back and say you killed a minute. You killed that time doing something that, that wasn't necessary or wasn't a priority or wasn't serving you. Anyway, this is the quote. Uh, I've loved it since I read it the first time. Who has never killed an hour? Not casually or without thought, but carefully. A premeditated murder of minutes. The violence comes from a combination of giving up, not caring, and a resignation that getting past it is all you can hope to accomplish. So you kill the hour. You do not work. You do not read. You do not daydream. If you sleep, it is not because you need to sleep. And when at last it is over, there is no evidence. No weapon, no blood, and no body. The only clue might be the shadows beneath your eyes or a terribly thin line near the corner of your mouth indicating something has been suffered, that in the privacy of your life you have lost something, and the loss is too empty to share. Now in the book, some of that is about not caring, of being in a darkness that causes you to waste the minutes. But in a larger scope, um, the idea of killing an hour, murdering minutes, and in your own mind and in your own headspace, you're the only one that recognizes that you've lost something, an opportunity, um, a small stretch. And they always say, you know, the way you spend your days is the way you spend your life. Well, that applies to minutes, too. So if you're killing an hour, if you're murdering minutes, uh, you are leaving behind opportunities and moments that could have been used to serve you. I just loved what Cheryl had to say, and I loved all of these amazing women that spoke at the summit. I hope you guys enjoyed getting a chance to hear some of it. You can listen to 
full panels and podcasts and conversations on ESPNW.com. Go to the Culture tab and drop down and you'll see ESPNW Summit. You can see all sorts of other incredible videos and pieces and artwork and photos and whatever from the summit. And don't forget to follow Badass Boz on Twitter and Instagram. That lady is amazing. You won't regret it. Oh, and another thing. This week's That's What She Read is in Slate.com by Warren Zanes, who was Tom Petty's biographer. And it's a great piece about who he was and what he meant to rock and roll, about his appreciation for music and the music that brought him up. And here's just a little bit of the end of that piece. You should read the whole thing. It's over at Slate.com, but uh, here's how he finishes it. There's a temptation to say that this day marks the official end of the rock and roll era, but that's both a little too neat and a little too saccharine. That the day the music died approach would surely get a quick rolling of the eyes from Petty in a sharp dismissal. Yes, if rock and roll's situation is judged by the state of the charts and the sound of mainstream radio, it's over. Has been for a while. But the most significant parts of the rock and roll lifestyle have never been lived up there on the higher floors. It happens in the shitty clubs and crappy cars where the music plays. Rock and roll has always been a thing that has its most complete moments somewhere out on the margins, largely out of view. Take a bus ride with a band, and almost inevitably they'll start talking about their earliest tours. They'll remember the sound man's name from the club they hated but played a hundred times and really loved. They'll go back to a time before they were treated like something special. Petty never lost touch with that time and those places. He lit up when he recalled the clubs in Gainesville where he and the Heartbreakers, who were not yet the Heartbreakers, stumbled toward their art. At the end, he remembered the beginning. You could hear that in the music. Again, that's on Slate.com, written by his biographer Warren Zanes. Uh, Really sad to hear the news of Tom Petty passing away and very thankful that I got to see him at Wrigley Field one last time this summer. Thankful to you guys also for listening. So thanks for spending about an hour, a little bit less than an hour this time with me. That's what she said.